The following study is a Wednesday night lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athe Creek Christian Fellowship. All right. Isaiah chapter 14 is where we left off on last Wednesday, and uh, we've been kind of covering those uh, scriptures. We, we took a break on Mother's Day, so we didn't do Isaiah there, but uh, we got some catch-up to do as we kind of did halfway through Isaiah 14, and uh, so we'll, we'll do that tonight. We'll pick up in the middle of chapter 14. If you recall, we got to be careful with the book of Isaiah because it's got a couple things that make it sort of a challenge, and I, I would say in kind of a fun way, a challenge, in that uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, it, it's got a couple things. First of all, the rhetorical, uh, you know, uh, work that Isaiah does here is so impressive. Linguistically, he uses a, a vocabulary second to none, but also he uses all the various forms of, um, you know, writing to uh, illustrate and to make it just a beautiful work of, of writing, you know. Um, and so it's, it's quite a handful just that way. But then you also have to watch out for Isaiah because, man, it seems like he goes in and out of near prophecy and far prophecy. One minute he's talking about Babylon of the day that they were living in, and the next minute he's talking about Babylon in even our future, the, the future Babylon that the Bible talks about. You know, Revelation chapter 17 and 18, religious Babylon, an economic Babylon of the last days. And, and one minute he'll be talking about the king of Babylon, the next minute he'll be talking about Antichrist, you know, and, and the coming of this world leader that's, that's going to come and mess with the world and all that stuff, you know. And, and so it gets a little tricky. He bobs in and out of the future, way, way off of the future for even for us, and then the near prophecy, which we'll call it the near interpretation of his day with the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the children of Israel in his day. And, and it's, it's really something the Bible does quite a bit in all the books, book of Daniel and others. There's dual fulfillments of similar prophecies, and, and Isaiah does that quite a bit. So that gives us kind of an interesting assignment as we go through this book to try to discern, is he talking about near or far? But there's, there are context clues. Some of the clues that you can look for is perhaps the clues, like, for example, is it more of a global sort of prophecy that has to do with the whole world? Or is it something that has to do more with Israel, the, the local, you know, promised land of J Jerusalem specifically and um, Judea? Uh, because, the, you know, when Isaiah's talking about the near prophecy, he's talking in a smaller scale, and he's talking about those kings of that day. But when he gazes out further into the future, you kind of hear more of a global thing. And we'll even see that perhaps tonight as we continue this study. But we, we bobbed in and out on in the middle of chapter 14, where we saw him talking about the king of Babylon. Then we saw him go to what was really um, the Antichrist, kind of moving his his sights further off in the future. And then he went all the way to the, Lucifer, the fall of Lucifer. And we saw that two Sundays ago, um, Isaiah chapter 14, about the, you know, the fall of Satan from heaven. Now, we saw that. Now, there's something you got to understand, even tonight's study. He was cast out of heaven. That is, that he wasn't able to live there or be there full time. But it is interesting. Does Satan still have access to heaven? It seems so. There is coming a time where he'll be finally once and for all, not allowed back in heaven. That's going to come in the book of Revelation. We might even touch on that a little bit tonight. But you have to understand, the first time when he fell from heaven, he was an angelic being from heaven that, you know, that was beautiful and, 
and then he was lifted up with pride, and we looked at that two Sundays ago, and he was cast out of heaven to this earth. It seems that his dwelling place is the earth. Remember the book of Job, chapter one, the Lord says, where you been? He said, I've been going all over the earth to and fro. Um, and we know he goes to, to and fro to seek whom he may devour. Who can, who can he mess with? Who can he hurt? And that's what Satan's doing even now. But it seems that he has some limited access to heaven to accuse the brothers and sisters. That's us. He accuses us day and night. So even in chapter 14 of Isaiah, we've, we've bobbed in and out of near prophecy of Babylonian kings all the way into Antichrist, the coming world leader that's going to be here in the tribulation period, and even further still, the uh, fall of Satan. And we've talked about those things. And we pick it up here in chapter 14, verse 18, once again, uh, getting back into um, Satan, Antichrist, or the king of Babylon. And let's take a look. It says in verse 18 of chapter 14, it says, all the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, everyone in his own house. But thou art cast out of thy grave like an abominable branch, as a, the raiment of those that are slain, thrust through with a sword, that go down to the stones of the pit, as a carcass trodden down under feet. Thou shalt not be joined with them in burial, because thou hast destroyed thy land and slain thy people. The seed of evildoers shall never be renowned, or never literally named. Prepare slaughter for his children, for the iniquity of their fathers, that they do not rise, nor possess the land, nor fill the face of the world with cities. So here in Isaiah, you know, chapter 14, we're picking it up, you know, after this description of Satan, it kind of goes on in this dark and gloomy picture. You know, you see this um, description of, you know, those that are slain thrust through his swords that go down into the stones of the pit and as a carcass trodden down under feet. You know, if you've ever studied World War I, there in the trenches, there were dead bodies and just kind of laying in the mud and they would just pile up and eventually that would become the pathway where people walked. I mean, it was a horrible, horrible, uh, grisly scene there in the World War I. And you can almost see that here with um, this description of the Babylonian soldiers. And literally, uh, ultimately, Satan is going to be uh, that. And there's, there's another reference here. And, you know, hopefully you're starting to get the little red flags. Like when you see the word abominable and next to it the word branch. Isn't that interesting? Do you remember the branch, the netzer? Jesus is the sprout or the blossom, the branch that uh, we talked about from all the way back in chapter 11, where, um, where Jesus is the one from Netzer, Nazareth. He would be a branch, the sprout. But Satan, remember, he's an imitator. He's a duplicator, except he's not a beautiful branch that's going to come and save the world. He's an abominable branch, as he's mentioned here in verse 19. And, um, and the idea is they're going to, you know, Babylon's going to go down uh, and they're, they're going to be part of that abominable branch of Satan, if you would. And that's both the near and the far prophecy given to, uh, to the Babylonians uh, in this section. Now, in verse 22, we pick up more of this kind of language, but some of this has not been fully yet seen. Let's see what we're looking at here in verse 22. It says, For I will rise up against them, saith the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name and remnant and son and nephew, saith the Lord. I will also make it a possession for the bittern and pools of water 
and I will sweep it with the um, besom of destruction, saith the Lord of hosts. Um, not fully seen in that the name of Babylon hasn't been fully cut off yet. This is going to be fully cut off, you know, after the tribulation period. Babylon's going to be history, literally. <laughs> no more talking about Babylon after Christ returns. That'll be the end of this whole Babylonian thing that started way back in the Tower of Babel with Nimrod uh, all the way through the centuries and millennia to the time where Christ returns, Babylon's going to be wiped out. And the idea is they won't have a name, verse 20. Um, the Lord says, I will rise up against all of them, remnant of the son, nephew, everyone will be uh, um, taken out, and I will make it a possession for the bittern. Now the word bittern there is King James. Um, and the funny thing is, depending on what translation you have, you probably have a different word there. Some of you, I think it's the new King Jimmy, puts in there porcupine. Uh, some of you guys have waterfowl. Others have hedgehog. Um, it's, it's, it's a debatable animal that's being referred to here. But it doesn't matter as much what the animal is. Uh, maybe you people that are zoologists would be really curious. What is a bittern or a What's the Hebrew word here? Well, the truth is we don't really know what the Hebrew kind of animal, the word for this is, but they're taking guesses. Uh, and that's why you have waterfowl, hedgehog, bittern, uh, or uh, porcupine. Uh, it's all the speculation, but it's a, it, the idea is an animal where men don't like to, you know, the animals won't hang out with people. The, the kind that are out in the wilderness with no people around, that's the idea. Babylon is going to be a place where it'll be totally uninhabited by people. Now, it's close to that in some ways now, but, you know, like I told you before, Saddam Hussein tried to build up Babylon. And, uh, and, and, uh, and now it sets in somewhat uh, kind of isolation again, but there's still some people there. Not many, but so I think the fullest extent of this will be fulfilled at the end, after the end of the tribulation period. Now, that could be literal, but we could also be talking about figurative Babylon. Um, and, you know, like I mentioned before, we don't know for sure. I don't know for sure if Babylon's going to be a literal city rebuilt in Iraq where ancient Babylon once stood. And that's going to be the center of the world's, uh, you know, commerce and religion uh, in a very short period of time. It's possible. But I think it's perhaps more likely that it's going to become more of an idea of religious Babylon, economic Babylon, and it doesn't need a geographical location as much as, uh, you know, uh, the internet and everything ties the world together now. Who knows? Babylon could be more of, you know, a centralized thought, uh, a way of life, a, um, and it has to do with a monetary system and a religious system. And that's the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and 18, talks about those two things, how they're going to look in the last days. So um, it's going to be a place where the bittern or the animal is going to be, and I, the Lord says, I will sweep it with the besom or the broom. That's just another word for broom uh, of destruction. The Lord's going to sweep it clean is the idea. Now, verse 24 is intriguing. Check it out. The Lord of hosts hath sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. I've marked that one in my Bible because what a truth that is. The Lord doesn't even have to speak the word for something to happen. You know, it's interesting that when he created the heavens and the earth, he said, let there be light. Poof, there was light. You know, the sun pops into the sky. Can you imagine that? The Lord just speaking the sun into existence, that massive ball of gas burning at such a temperature that it brings life to us, you know, 
on earth. Like it's such an amazing combination of things that the Lord created. And he spoke those things into his existence. But here he doesn't even have to speak it. He can just think it. The Lord says, surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. Whatever is in the Lord's thoughts, um, it's going to come to pass. Now that sounds a little scary, but don't forget his thoughts are wiser than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. So we don't have to worry as, as believers, as followers of the Lord, we can trust his thoughts and what he's going to think. Um, but he thinks of this. He says, man, I'm going to destroy Babylon. That's, that's as good as done. The Lord is the one who knows the beginning uh, from the end. Uh, he knows the future. Don't listen to these goofballs that are going out there saying, God doesn't know the future. It's unwritten. You're in charge of your own destiny. That's just stupid. God knows what he's doing. He predicts the future all throughout the Bible, and he does it with 100% accuracy. Like a person that says that God doesn't know what's happening in the future, just must not be read their Bible because they're missing major themes um, that the Bible actually tells us. Don't get sucked into that kind of um, religion or, or theology, I should say, or doctrine that teaching God doesn't really know the future. Um, don't buy into that because here the Lord knows exactly the future. And that's why he takes such great pain. One-fourth of the Bible, at least, just over really, one-fourth of the Bible is Bible prophecy. God telling the future. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows the future of all things. And that's why he spends so much time telling us about that. So he, he makes that point there in verse 24 that he, he knows what's going to happen. He thinks it, it's going to come to pass. Now in verse 25, there's an interesting um, title that uh, you might want to note, and that's the Assyrian. Because there is the Assyrian of the near prophecy of Isaiah, but there's also the Assyrian that's another name for Antichrist. Did you know that? Antichrist, by the way, if you want to do an interesting eschatological study, you can, you can study the different names and delineations of the Antichrist. We tend to call him the Antichrist because that's sort of what we call him. But the Bible calls him a lot of things, son of perdition, which actually there's two people are, that are named son of perdition in the Bible. Um, the word perdition means waste. And um, the son of, who's the son of waste? Or you're a total waste. Have you ever heard somebody call them that? That's not a very nice thing to call someone. Um, but the Bible calls two people son of waste, son of perdition. And that is number one, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. He, he was the son of waste or perdition. But the second being person in the Bible that's called son of perdition is Antichrist. So there's another title, son of perdition, Antichrist, man of sin, he's called. He's also called the Assyrian. And that's an interesting uh, name given. And, and there, like I said, there's many others that we could talk about, but those are the ones we're going to kind of focus on. Um, but verse 25, he says, that I will break the Assyrian in my land and upon my mountains, tread him underfoot, then shall his yoke depart from off them and his burden depart from off their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed um, upon the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations. For the Lord of hosts hath purposed it. Uh, who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out. And who shall turn it back? In the year that King Ahaz died was this burden. Now again, here's Isaiah bobbing and weaving, weaving and bobbing, in and out of near prophecy and future prophecy. When he mentions Ahaz at the end of this little stretch here in verse 28, you think of the near prophecy. 
When you think of the Assyrian, you might think of the near prophecy because the Assyrian would be trodden down. Remember, um, you know, Rabshakeh, the trash taka and all that, the Assyrians coming down and cir- circumferencing, you know, the city of Jerusalem and then the angel coming at night and slaying them. That was the Assyrian. You know, those are the ones who died. So this really would come to pass, just like Isaiah says. But again, this is where you have to kind of wonder because he also reaches out to more of a global sort of vision here when he says in verse 26, um, this, this is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth. Did you see that? In verse 26, the whole earth. And this is the, the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations. The truth is, during the time of Isaiah, this prophecy would be partially fulfilled in, of course, Rabshakeh and the Assyrians and um, the mountains of Israel and the death of the Assyrians. But the implication is somewhere, some way, this is going to be applied globally, all the nations and the whole earth. And I believe that's talking about the Antichrist, who's also called the Assyrian, who's going to be world leader in the same region of the world. He's going to be on the mountains of Israel, just like this story here, just like the Assyrians of the old time, same geographical location. The only difference is when Antichrist, this coming world leader, comes, it's going to be the whole earth that's going to have their eyes on it. Uh, It's going to be global. All that to say, uh, we see both the near prophecy and the far prophecy in just these short verses here. Well, verse 29, rejoice not thou whole Palestina, because of the rod of him that smote thee is broken, for out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. Uh, now pause for a second. This is going to be a little quiz for you. Who is being talked to here? Rejoice not, thou whole Palestina, because of the rod of him that smote thee is broken. Now, if you don't know your Bible very well, you say, okay, this is talking about Palestine, which is Israel. But you know, the Bible doesn't call Israel Palestine. Do you want to know who called Israel Palestine? If, if you have an old map, your map might call it Palestine. Or if you have a, a map that's biased in trying to say that Israel has no right to be in the land that God gave them, which by the way, there's quite a few people that make that claim today. Um, like I saw a map from United Airlines a few years ago that caught my attention. I thought it was funny that United, at least the map that I saw in their, in their magazine on board, they had a map of the world and they called it Palestine, uh, which is Israel. So that's just somebody at United using a map that's got a bias that says that the, the Palestinians should be there. But some people would read this and think, oh, that's talking about Palestine or Israel. But that's not the case. Remember, Palestine or Palestina was another way of saying Philistine. Um, when did Israel become Palestine? Was it when the Philistines were there? Nope. The Philistines were long extinct. By the way, the Philistines were wiped out by the Israel, but, but the last blow to the last Philistines would be during the Assyrians' uh, conquering of that whole region of the world. The, the, you don't hear from the Philistines ever again. In Jerusalem, there's an uh, Israeli museum right there in the center of Jerusalem, and it's, um, it's an amazing museum. Um, you, but they have, a whole, they have a whole section of Philistine artifacts and weapons and warfare and they were way advanced in their weaponry until the Assyrians came along. Uh, that's when they would be ultimately wiped out. So the Philistines became extinct. There are no Philistines on the world today. And by the way, they came from like the, the Aegean area of the, of the Aegean Sea. You know, some people believe they were from Crete or Cyprus. Um, they came from that region of the world and boated their way, shipped their way down the Mediterranean to what is, you know, south 
you know, uh, West Israel uh, called the Gaza Strip. Um, and they had their, you know, five Philistine cities that included Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gat, and all, Gath, and all those other cities, um, you know, the, the Philistine cities. But after they were long extinct, the Roman Empire came and, and uh, you know, eventually AD 70, they drove out the Jews from Israel out of Jerusalem. And it was um, ultimately, you know, Hadrian, the emperor Hadrian, who hated the Jews. Just remember that. Whenever you hear the name Hadrian, he hated the Jews. He was a horrible guy. Maybe one of the worst guys other than Hitler um, to Jewish people in history. Um, He's the guy that said, if you see two Jews talking together in Jerusalem, you could kill them on the spot. Kind of like if you walk into you know, um, you know, Costco without a mask, mask on today. Um, but no, I'm just kidding. Just making fun of that. It, it, you could kill two Jews for just talking on the street of Jerusalem. Um, it was Hadrian who salted the farmlands of the, of the Jews so that they couldn't grow crops anymore. It was Hadrian who changed the name of Jerusalem to Elia Capitolina, which was to erase the Jews' um, heritage there. But also he changed the name of Israel to Palestina. Why? Because he knew that the the Jews, ancient, even though they're extinct, he knew his history, that the Philistines were the ancient enemies of of the Jews, and the Jews wiped out the Philistines. But to spite the Jew, he said, we're going to name your nation Palestina after the Philistines. Your long rival arch nemesis, the Philistines, they're going to have the win because they're going to be, it's going to be called that. And, and you know, you got to give it to Hadrian as an evil dude. He did a good job because it, that name still sticks today. Um, and it causes confusion today. There's a bunch of Arabs that call themselves Palestinians today, but they're not really Palestinians, Philistines. They're actually Jordanians. Did you know that? The Palestinian of today is actually a Jordanian. And uh, it's, it's really kind of an interesting problem because the world thinks the poor Palestinians, you know, and I do feel sorry for some of the Palestinians and stuff. They, they've got it rough. I also am friends with Palestinians who just want to live in Israel peacefully, and um, the world and a bunch of Arab nations are using them as pawns to be in a position where uh, they're trying to cause trouble for Israel. But So it's not all the Palestinians that are the problem. It's, it's Islam, and it's the surrounding Arab nations that's the real problem there. And they've got this world narrative that so many people have been sucked into that these poor Palestinians have been kicked out of their long homeland, you know, which is not historically accurate. Even in the 1920s, the Palestinian Orchestra was a Jewish orchestra. The Palestinian Times was a Jewish newspaper. Um, It wasn't until Yasser Arafat, remember Arafat, the Munich slayings in the uh, Olympics? Uh, That was, you know, PLO, Yasser Arafat, who did that and was the guy that was around that really brought the Palestinian of today uh, to the surface, saying that these are the real Palestinians, which they weren't. But anyway, I say all that because there's huge confusion. And so there's people today that read even this scripture, they think, oh, we must be talking about the Palestinians, or no, or maybe they're thinking Palestina, Israel, but no. This is referring to the ancient uh, Philistines, or Palestine is an old, uh, old way of saying it, is the Philistines. So that's who we're talking about here. So verse 29, rejoice not thou whole Palestina because the rod of him that smote thee is broken. Um, Who smote the Palestinians? The Philistines of ancient times. The rod of the Assyrian would be broken. And that's what the Lord is predicting here. And that's what happened. You can check that box. The Philistines became sort of extinct 
because of the Assyrian conquest. Well, verse 30, And the firstborn of the poor shall feed, the needy shall lie down in safety, and I will kill thy root with famine, and he shall slay thy remnant. Howl, O gate, cry, O city, thou, whole Palestina, art dissolved, for there shall come from the north a smoke, and none shall be alone in his appointed times. What shall one of them answer the messengers of the nation that the Lord hath founded Zion? and the poor of his people shall trust in it. So it's just talking about the fall of the Philistines and their final doom right there. Now, by the way, um, uh, I love the Bible because it's always so accurate. The, the idea that the Philistines, remember I told you they were from the Aegean area there and they were probably from Crete or Cyprus? Um, that's what the Bible implies. The Bible implies that. And so, you know, a lot of us have just said, we, we think they went came across the Mediterranean Sea but um, that was very much argued by the secular college professors, the cardigan-wearing, pipe-puffing college professors. The Philistines were never from that area, and blah, blah, blah. And the Bible's got it wrong. They've been saying that. But in 2016, in the ancient city of Gath, I've been there. Um, I've walked on the ancient archaeological ruins of Gath. But in 2016, they dug up and found some, um, what do you call them? You know, the iron smelter or whatever, where they actually forge iron weapons. They actually found where they did that. And what, what was interesting about that is it confirmed the, uh, the uh, ancient Philistine, um, you know, people were from that Aegean area because there was only one other place in the world where they were forging uh, weapons in, with that kind of a technique. It was very modern for their times, and they were ahead of the game. Nobody in the land of Canaan had anything close to what the Philistines were doing when they first got there. Um, and that, that's because they were from the Aegean area. And, and, you know, once again, the Bible's confirmed as being right and accurate. Um, so if somebody comes and tells you that something in the Bible's wrong, you could just say, well, we'll see. <laughs> because, you know, as time goes by, the, the Bible just continually gets confirmed, even on the most controversial things. People, there's still things that so-called scholarship says, the Bible's wrong on this, but very few things, and most things are just harebrained. Uh, but, but if there are things that we don't know for sure, the Bible's going to be proven right. You, if you want to be on the right side, follow the Bible, believe the Bible. Well, I digress. Uh, chapter 15 now moves from, you got Babylon, we've been talking about the Assyrians, and now we've covered the Philistines, but now we're going to start knocking some, on some of these other nations, Moab, and uh, this is a big one, the Moabites. Who are the Moabites? Well, let's take a look here in uh, chapter 15. It says, the burden of Moab. Remember, Isaiah is kind of the burden guy. Woe unto you. Burdens. Woe. He's giving all the burdens to these nations and what have you. So he says, the burden of Moab, uh, because in the night our of Moab is laid waste and brought to silence. Because in the night, Kerr of Moab is laid waste and brought to silence. He is done, uh, pardon me, he's gone up to Bayit and to Divon the high places, to weep. Moab shall uh, howl over Nebo and over Madaba. On all their heads shall be baldness and every beard cut off. Hmm, doesn't sound so good. You know what would have been the worst thing for these guys is to hear that they'd be bald and beardless. 
<laughs> baldness and beardless. Um, that's what, that was their future. The reason that would have been horrible because the people of Moab and the people of that region of the world, if they were shaving off their beards and their hair, that meant the worst thing of all the worst things must have ever happened. And that's the imagery here. What? We're going to cut off our beards and shave our heads? Um, what could be worse would be sort of their, their idea there. But they're going to, those cities of Kerr and, and other places, Devon and Baith, um, and other places like Nebo and Madiba. These are places I've been to, by the way. One of my favorite places in Jordan, by the way, is a little town called Madiba, which is mentioned here. And the reason why is there's a restaurant there that's got really good chicken. <laughs> it's, it's definitely Middle Eastern, but man, these guys, if you're ever in Madaba, just find the restaurant in the center of town that's got the chicken. Oh, it's so good. Um, now, we may have all gotten sick there uh, when we did our last trip because some food poisoning, but that's kind of what happens in third world countries. <laughs> but, uh, but we enjoyed it uh, while we were eating. I guess that's for sure. <laughs> but uh, those of you who are with me in Israel, you know what I'm talking about. But there on the same day, we visited Madaba for lunch, but we also, or I guess that was more of a dinner, but then right after that, we drove up the mountain of Mount Nebo, uh, which is where Moses, of course, looked over the promised land from the east side of the Jordan River, looked down into the valley of the Jordan Valley there, and, and the Lord showed him Israel, but that's also where the Lord took Moses up, and he died that, uh, in that region of Mount Nebo. Um, and we've t- I've taken people there. I've been to Jordan nine times now and uh, gave people tours through this whole region of Moab. Now, by the way, people, people that go on Israel trips, it's interesting because most groups don't go to Jordan. Um, and the reason why it's kind of hard, it's kind of brutal. You got to cross the border crossing and they take your passports and run off everywhere. And it's a kind of work. And, and, you know, Israel, when you're in Israel, you're like in a, you know, you might as well be in Portland. Like it's, uh, you know, Western, it's very modern. There's nice food and vehicles and everything's clean and good. Man, you cross the border, suddenly, you know, you ain't in Kansas anymore. You're in Jordan, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And now it's gotten better in the, in the uh, you know, 25 years I've been taking people to, to the land of Jordan. Um, it's gotten better and easier and cleaner. But it's still, it's a good experience for our group because a lot of times our groups have never been to third world countries and it's a good experience. But um, one of the things that our groups tend to be impressed by is how much of the Bible that's in our narrative of the scriptures happened in Jordan. Like, you know, Israel gets the delineation of the land of the Bible. But you could equally say that Jordan is the land of the Bible. Well, Jesus wasn't in Jordan. Yes, he was. Did you know that when Jesus got baptized by John the Baptist, he was on the Jordanian side of the river, um, down in, not, not that far from Mount Nebo. That's where Jesus, everybody thinks Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River in, uh, near the Sea of Galilee because that's where the baptismal site is that the churches have set up and stuff. But that's not really where it was. It was actually much further south from there, and it's hard to get to. Um, you have to go to Jordan, and if you want to see the real baptismal site or area where Jesus was baptized. Not that that's hugely important. But not only did that happen, but Moses and the children of Israel wandered and went up into that region. That's how they came into the promised land, up and around into Jordan. And they crossed the Jordan River from the east side and went into Israel from that direction. Um, And uh, places like, um, you know, um, Ammon and Moab and and Edom, all those places where so many of these stories happened, well, they happened right there in Jordan. Moab is hugely important in the Bible. Now, I'm not just going to tell you this just for your your health. 
So try to remember what I'm about to say, because it's going to play into the whole story here. Moab, what you're going to hear in Isaiah's tone as he's talking about the woe or the burden upon Moab, he's going he's to weep. He's going to be sort of teary-eyed when he talks about the destruction of Moab. Um, but why? Uh, it almost seems like Isaiah gets a sick joy out of the other countries. Egypt, you're going down, you know, or, or uh, Babylon, you're going down. But with Moab, he's almost got a teary-eyed about it because why? Well, you see, the Moabites, who were they? Well, they started in the story of Lot. If you recall, Lot and his wife and his daughters were there in, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah. And when the Lord took, told them to get out of Dodge, they, they ran out after being kind of plucked out by the angel. And, you know, the, the Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Remember that story? And then Lot and his two daughters, they finally did what the Lord told them, go off into a place called Zoar. Well, that's actually not even exactly. The Lord wanted them to go up into a mountain. But they went to the little town Zoar, um, and the Lord said, okay, if you want to go to Zoar. But then eventually, when the fire and brimstone rained, then Lot and his two daughters went up into a cave up in the mountains. Well, the daughters looked out and saw the fire and brimstone pounding their city from off in the distance. And they thought, oh, no, we're going to be barren. We're not going to have children because all the men are dead now. So what they did was dastardly. They got their father drunk in that cave that night and had sexual relationship with their own father. Uh, see, Lot is not a very great dude, by the way, and, and that's why I always make the argument about Lot. But, but um, out of that incestuous relationship, the two daughters became pregnant and gave birth to one son apiece. And one son, the, the oldest, his name was Moab, and the second son of the second daughter was named Ammon. The Moabites and the Ammonites were the descendants of Lot. Are you still with me? So that's a pretty dark uh, origin. Can you imagine being a people group saying, yeah, we're, our family started out with an incestuous, drunken stupor. Um, great news for our family, genealogically, our tree or whatever. But that's the way it was for the Moabites. But isn't it like the Lord to redeem the most horrible situations? Because, you know, the Moabites, as you read the Bible story, there's some actually amazing things that the Moabites did. One of those things, remember a story of a lady named Naomi and a girl named Ruth? Remember that story in the book of Ruth? This beautiful redemptive story of the near kinsman, you know, the kinsman redeemer and Boaz and and, um, you know, in uh, Boaz, if he didn't meet Ruth, he would have been ruthless. Uh, so it was really good. Sorry. It was, it was really good that he, he, that he met Ruth. And, and, uh, and, and what, what else about that story is so great is Boaz and Ruth ended up having a baby. And then that baby grew up and ended up having a baby and another baby. Ruth's great-great-grandson was none other than David himself. Did you know that? That David had a, an ancestry that linked back to the Moabites. So you got this amazing story that touches the heart of Israel when you talk about King David, the very first good king uh, of all of Israel, the great king, King David, who would ultimately be the line from which Jesus the Messiah would come. Isn't that amazing that Jesus was, was his ancient ancestors were, were also Moabites? That, that's kind of an, it makes me wonder, is that why Isaiah could be weepy when he talks about the destruction of Moab? Well, it, there's more to it, by the way. Do you remember when David was running from King Saul? He, he hid in the place of Moab and hid his family there. 
And later on, when he'd run from Absalom, remember when he went out of the city of, Absal- uh, of Jerusalem because his son Absalom was, did a military coup and David was walking out of the city in shame? He went and the Moabites took him in and protected him during that time. Of course, David would come back. His son Absalom would be slain in battle, sort of, um, uh, hanging from his hair from a tree. It's a long story. But, but David would come back to Jerusalem triumphant, but it was the Moabites who gave him respite and comfort during his most difficult days. Um, and I could go on. There's actually warm, fuzzy stories about the Moabites, um, even though they were oftentimes enemies of Israel, and they went to battle against the Israelites quite often. Um, there also are some warm, fuzzy uh, feelings toward the Moabites. Are you guys with me on that? Now, the reason that's going to be important is because the Moabites get this sort of weepy treatment from Isaiah as he's telling about their destruction. But I wonder, when he looks at it from the far distant future prophecy, does Moab in the future come to play? The answer, yes. The answer is yes. And this is where you have to watch the book of Isaiah carefully. And this is where it gets really interesting, if you ask me. So, um, you know, he's he's, he's, um, weeping over Moab is the idea, howling over Nebo. Verse 3, and in their streets they shall gird themselves with sackcloth on the tops of their houses and in their streets. Everyone shall howl, weeping abundantly, and Heshbon um, shall cry, and Eliela, their voice shall be heard even to Jahaz. Therefore, the armed soldiers of Moab shall cry out, his life shall be grievous unto him. My heart shall cry out. Whose heart? Isaiah. He said, I'm going to cry for Moab. Verse 5, my heart shall cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee to Zoar, same city that Lot fled to, if you remember, um, with his daughters, and a heifer of three years old, for by the mounting up of Luhit, uh, with weeping they shall go up to it, uh, for in the way of Horo uh, Naim they shall raise up a cry for destruction. For the waters of Nimrim shall be desolate, for the hay is withered away, the grass faileth, there is no green thing. Therefore the, uh, the abundance they have gotten and that which they have laid up shall they carry away to the brook of the willows, for the cry is gone round about the borders of Moab, and the howling thereof to Eglaim, and the howling thereof to Birilim. For the waters of Demon shall be full of blood, for I will bring more upon Demon lions upon him that escapeth of Moab, and upon the remnant of the land. Wow, it's a lot here, but basically Moab's going down, and Isaiah's sad about it, and he gives colorful poetry uh, type language, poetry language, to sort of articulate this destruction. But it seems that in chapter 15, we're talking about the near prophecy of that day when the Assyrians would wipe out Moab. Are you with me so far? But in chapter 16, he's going to look further still in history and talk about Moab in future times. And we see this uh, in verse 1. It goes on of chapter 16. Send ye the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah, to the wilderness unto the mount of the daughter of Zion. Now, just right here, this language, if you're a Bible student and you know Bible prophecy and you know language and what have you, you'll know that there's some some red flags already in this verse that should mean something. Send ye the lamb. Why are we talking all of a sudden about a lamb? 
Well, if, if you guys know, the lamb is Jesus Christ. Remember John the Baptist, who was there in Jordan, in Moab, that region, when he said this, he said, behold, the lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. So now he says, send ye the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness unto the mount of the daughter of Zion. That's Mount Zion. That's Jerusalem. Do what? Send the lamb to the ruler of the land of Selah, which is in um, which is in Moab, this place called Selah. We'll talk about that in a second. And, and it says um, to the mount of da- uh, the daughter of Zion. So we're, there's a relationship between Jerusalem and Petra. Petra, did you say Petra? Yeah, notice the word Selah. If you look in your margin, many of your Bibles will say the word Petra there. Why? Because minimally Selah and Petra were very close. Some would say it's the exact same place. Um, the word Petra, of course, means rock. Um, and that's the Hebrew word for this, uh, that's is the idea of a rock or rock city. Again, I've been to Petra like nine times. I've, I've hiked through Petra and seen it. And it, it truly is one of the ancient wonders of the world. It's a modern wonder of the world too, by the way. It was voted that just recently, um, this ancient rock city. What does the rock city of Petra have to do with Jerusalem? Well, see, therein lies a story. Do you recall, now, now strap on your safety belt because we're going to go in, we're going to dive in deep here. Um, do you recall the book of Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 9, remember the 70 weeks prophecy, there's 69 weeks that have already been fulfilled. There's still a 70th week that's yet to be fulfilled. And then Daniel chapter 9 says in that 70th week or that 70th seven year period, that's what it is, a week of seven years. It says in the midst of that week or three and a half years into that week, there's going to be that which makes the abomination desolate or the abomination of desolation. What is that? I always think it sounds like some old movie from the 80s, the abomination of desolation coming soon to a theater near you. Um, but but it's, an abomina- it's, it's like an abominable act that's going to cause desolation on the earth. Uh, so that's what the abomination of desolation is. And it wasn't just talked about, about from Daniel. See, Daniel gives us sort of the, the first idea of what's going to happen with the abomination of desolation. Jesus also talked about it in um, Matthew chapter 24. In fact, why don't you turn there with me? Well, boy, yeah, let's not, I won't go to Daniel. You can look it up if you want, because I'm running out of time already. But in Matthew chapter 24, um, we read about this. Remember the disciples um, asked Jesus, you know, what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? And Jesus then spends the next three pages talking in red letters because Jesus gives the longest sermon he ever gave talking about the end of the world. Um, Now, one of the most unfortunate interpretations, I think, of this passage where Jesus talked about the end of the world is there's a bunch of churches and pastors today that say this has already all happened. It happened in AD 70 when the Romans sacked Jerusalem. And so this has already been fulfilled. It means nothing for us today. That's an unfortunate interpretation because Again, if you look at Matthew 24, it's not just Jerusalem we're talking about. The, the, the prophecy that Jesus gives about the future, the end times, is global. Nations of the world, all the earth, and all those kinds of languages are used here in Matthew 24. I hope you see that. But Jesus, you know, says, you know, uh, what will be the signs of the times, earthquakes in diverse places, wars, rumors of war, pestilence, which is the idea of viruses and disease. Anybody thought of that lately? Um, that's a sign of the end times. Uh, birth pains, Jesus said. They're like, a, they're like birth pains. As the time gets closer, the birth pains are more frequent and more intense. 
And that's what Jesus says. But check this out. Um, in verse 15 of John, uh, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, When you, therefore, shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. What's that? The abomination of desolation is going to stand in the holy place? That's in the temple. Remember, there's going to be a new temple built in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount in the tribulation period. And so this Antichrist, this coming world leader, is going to stand in the middle of the temple, the holy place. And what's he going to do? He's going to stand there. The idea is to be worshipped by all. Check it out. Verse, um, verse 16. Then let them which be in Judea flee unto the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to get his clothes. And woe to them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray that your flight may be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. What's the big deal of the Sabbath day? By the way, if you're in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day to this day, good luck getting a taxi or a bus ride or like everything shuts down on the Sabbath day in Jerusalem. And that's the idea. Pray that it's not on the Sabbath. You're going to need transportation. Um, by the way, you know, it's, you might even think I'm making this up, but you know, if you're on an, ele- if you're on the Sabbath elevator in a building, good luck getting to the bottom of the, because see, on the Sabbath day, the Jews don't want to, they're not supposed to do any work and lighting a match or pushing a button to close an electrical circuit is counted as work. This is not the Bible. This is the Jews laws that they added to make even more of a burden of the laws. So the Jews can't turn on light switches, uh, the ones that are keeping the Sabbath uh, to the nth degree. So they have these Sabbath elevators where you don't have to push a button. It's great if you don't want to push a button. You don't have to. You just get on that Sabbath elevator and it stops at every single floor uh, of the building. If you're like, like on the ninth floor, it takes like 45 minutes to get from the top down to the bottom. And we've been in hotels where I have wrongly got into the Sabbath elevator. Um, pray that it's not on the Sabbath day because it takes forever to get to places. That's the idea. Well, Jesus say, man, you know, um, in those days, uh, it says, pray that your, your flight's not on the Sabbath. Verse 21, for then shall be great tribulation. By the way, seven-year period called the tribulation. The last three and a half years of the tribulation um, is called the great tribulation. So the, the great part is at the end, the worst part. Not great like, yeah, it's awesome. Great like great horribleness is the idea. So the first three and a half years, tribulation. The last three and a half years, the great tribulation, all of which is called the tribulation. Are you with me so far? So Jesus is saying during that time, in the middle part of the tribulation, this coming world leader, Antichrist, is going to go into the temple to be worshipped by men. Do people worship other people? Are we set up in the world who's looking for a leader to exalt, to extol? Someone who comes up with answers for all the world's problems, seemingly? I think the stage is set for that, by the way. But that's going to happen Then, verse 21, for then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no evermore shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. The elect of that time, I believe, are the Jews. We're talking about the Jews. We're not going to be there during that time. That's the tribulation. I believe you and I are going to be in heaven because we've been raptured to be up with the Lord. The Lord doesn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. Um, and he is going to save the Jews out of tribulation, not us. Um, but that's a whole other part of the story. So, okay, you're saying, okay, so Brett, Jesus says 
that the Jews are going to come to this time called the abomination of desolation in Jerusalem, seven-year period called tribulation, three and a half years in the middle. Antichrist is going to be worshiped. But see, that's when the Jews are going to realize they have been duped, tricked by this world leader. Daniel 9 says they're going to sign a peace treaty with them. But it's at this point they're going to run for their lives. Why? Well, Daniel says he will make war against the elect, the, the, the Jews there. He'll, he'll hate the Jews. Does that ring a bell? Does that sound like something has happened to the Jews in times past? Yes. Well, this is going to be the worst one of all. This Antichrist is one of, just like Hitler, want to, you know, have the final solution and kill all the Jews. And so the Jews are going to run for their lives in the middle of the tribulation to a place in the wilderness. And, and what's going to happen when they run to the wilderness? And what wilderness are they going to run to? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. I'm just showing you some of the highlights. There's more to this, but I'm giving you sort of the basic rundown here. In Revelation chapter 12, we have, you know, this description of this time. Of course, John the apostle uses some pretty colorful, picturesque um, language, kind of allegory, sort of metaphor uh, a little bit uh, used here. So it's, you got to understand some of the imagery, but it's Revelation twelve twelve. It says, therefore rejoice you heavens, ye that dwell in them, woe unto the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. When is the devil going to know that he has a short time? At the abomination of desolation, he knows. When that happens, why do we know that? Verse 13, and when the dragon, that's the devil, saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Who's the woman there? Israel. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and a half time from the face of the serpent. Okay, now this is a thing the Bible does sometimes when it talks about time, times, and half time. What is a time, times, and half times? Three and a half years. Time, times, and a half time. <laughs> Three and a half years is the idea there. Just like Jesus said, just like Daniel the prophet said. And what will happen during that time? Verse 15, the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, the Jews, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood and the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Brett, the Jews don't keep the commandments of God or the testimony of Jesus Christ. They will. When Antichrist comes to be worshiped in the temple, that's when all of the Jews, their eyes shall be opened. It says there in Revel, uh, pardon me, Romans eleven twenty five. 25. Um, so the Jews, their eyes will be opened. They'll see the Antichrist as not the one, and they'll realize Jesus is the Christ. And they'll be looking for his return during that last three and a half years. They'll be put in the wilderness, like Jesus said, like Daniel said. And where is that going to happen? This is where we believe it's going to be Petra. And we believe that from several places. But one is back in our text. In Isaiah. Now, what, what's going to happen? They're going to go to this wilderness place called Petra, and the, the, the Antichrist is going to spew out, the devil's going to spew out of, of, like vomit out a flood of water. What is that? The answer? I have no idea. But it's something to make war against them. Is he going to spew out 
poisonous gas? Is he going to spew out an army to chase after the Jews? Is he going to spew out a literal flood of water so it's going to drown him? But, but what we know is the Lord is going to supernaturally cause the earth to help the woman. Now, some people say Petra is the perfect place to hide away from Antichrist. And they think that the land will help her because it's a strategically great place geographically. The problem with that is F-15s. Um, or F-35s, or weapons, that, you, know, you know, bombs and stuff. That doesn't really help you in Petra. Um, it was great back in chariot days to hide in Petra, but not so much today. So people say, well, then why go to Petra? The earth's going to help her. How? Supernaturally. It sort of reminds me, remember when Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were chiding against Moses and Aaron? And Moses said, okay, everybody, step away from Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, because things are about to go down. Remember that? And what happened? The earth opened up and swallowed Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and all their followers and then closed back up over them. That's where the earth helped out a little bit with Moses, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. If you recall the story in the Old Testament, something like that. The earth is going to swallow up whatever flood this coming world leader throws at the Jews in the place called Petra. It's going to be a supernatural event, I'm convinced. It's not going to be like strategically a great place for the Jews to hide in Petra because, you know, of the, the geography. Nope. I believe it's going to be a miraculous, supernatural event where the Jews are going to be helped by God to save them from this wrath of the Antichrist who's ticked off at the Jews, totally ticked. Um, now, what's great about this is uh, we didn't know, when I use the term we historically for, you know, in recent history, really where Petra even was, this lost city of Petra. Did you know that? Did you know that there was only a legend, kind of like the city of the lost city of Atlantis? You know, we talk about the underwater city of Atlantis and it's like mythical and mysterious. Petra was like that. There was the lost city of Petra and nobody knew where it was. But there was legend about this city of, in Moab from the ancient times, the Nabataeans. And the, before the Roman Empire, there were Nabataeans that carved a beautiful city. Nobody knew where it was. Now, it was in 1812 there was a guy named Johann Burkhardt um, who was, you know, um, like an archaeological guy in 1812. And he was determined to find the lost city of Petra. And he'd been poking around that region of Jordan today. Um, and um, and um, he, he heard of this city, but nobody would let him in because he was an outsider. And there was only a small group of people that they would let into this region um, and, uh, and he learned that there was only one kind of person they'd let in, people that believed that you should worship Aaron, the brother of Moses. Remember that? Um, and Aaron's tomb, by the way, is said to have been there in Petra, that region not far from Nebo, where Moses was buried. And so Burkhart, back in 1812, dressed himself up like a, an Arab guy, you know, put the turban on, and fortunately he had dark eyes, and he kind of was able to pull it off. And he walked up to the area by Wadi Musa. Um, I've spent the night on the dirt there in Wadi Musa years ago in a hotel. It only cost me $5, $5 hotel, but it was dirt floor and they didn't have mattress, just dirt. Um, I, but, but I've stayed in Wadi Musa. Bur- Burkhart was there and he said, I want to worship Aaron. And what was interesting is he, was, he, he knew how to do this. They knew that if he said, I want to worship, they had to let him in. So Burkhart, with a small team of archaeological guys and an artist, a guy who was a, you know, an artist into drawing, 
they, they brought him in to worship Aaron and they saw, found the lost city of Petra and they drew drawings. So you can look, look, look up, look up uh, you know, Johann Burkhardt and you'll see the artist's renderings of the lost city of Petra. And um, it's an amazing thing. If you ever get in that region of the world, you've got to go to Petra. It's amazing. Um, if you, you've seen the movie, The Last Crusade, you know, Indiana Jones, the third movie, um, they show that one of the facades in Petra, one of hundreds and hundreds of facades in Petra is there in that movie. It looks like a temple that they're going into, the rocks. Um, and that's a real place. Uh, also on Transformers, one of those movies, which is not recommended. Um, but but they've been in movies because they're so amazing to see these these carvings in the, the sheer cliffs that the Nabataeans carved. You say, well, Brett, what's, so what's the deal? Well, when they found that city, it was amazing because it sort of connected the dots in what the Bible says, that there really is a place like Petra, Selah, another name for that, where the Jews will flee during this time called the, the Great Tribulation. Now let's go back to our text. I'm way off course. I was supposed to be in chapter 19 by now. <laughs> but where do we are? Chapter 16. Um, so so he, he says in verse 1 of chapter 16, send ye the lamb to the ruler of the land of Selah, or Petra, to the wilderness, unto the mount of the daughter of Zion, for it shall be that as a wandering bird cast out of the nest, so the daughters of Moab shall be at the fords of Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make thy shadow as the night in the midst of of the noonday, hide the outcast. Who are the outcast? The Jews. Hide them. Beray, or don't betray. Beray not, or betray not, him that wandereth. Let mine outcast dwell with thee, Moab. Be thou a covert, a covering to them from the face of the spoiler, for the extortioner is at the end. There's another name for the Antichrist, by the way. The extortioner is at, the, at an end. The spoiler seetheth ceaseth. The oppressors are consumed out of the land, and in mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hastening righteousness. If you're Isaiah or the people of Isaiah during that time, what does this mean to you? The answer, absolutely nothing. What? The throne of David, David's dead. What? Moab's going to be a help to the Jews from the extortioner? What are you talking about? But see, you and I have the advantage of the book of Daniel, of the book of Matthew, and Jesus is talking about this event, and the book of Revelation, chapter 12. You see, Isaiah is connecting these dots for us of where they're going to flee. They're going to flee to the mountains of Moab, to the region we call Petra or Selah, and that's where the Jews will hide out from Antichrist. And, and Moab will be a covering for them from the face of the spoiler, from the extortioner. This connects the dots. And isn't it great? Now, this is where just to me, I love the Bible for its continuity. Um, There's an expositional continuity all throughout the Bible. And that is, isn't it interesting that Moab, even though they were kind of enemies of Israel a lot of the time, it was the place that Israel and David and others would run to for cover. (laughs) David would, remember, he ran to Moab to, to be safe out of Israel. And isn't it interesting the Jews are going to run to Moab for cover just like David did back in the day. And uh, ultimately, Moab is going to be a covering for them. Um, and so we're, we're, we're kind of in the thick of that where, where Isaiah the prophet is seeing all the way into the end of the tribulation period when the Jews flee to the wilderness of Moab. Are you guys still with me? Did I lose you? 
If you are a little confused, you can listen to our teachings on uh, Revelation chapter 12 and also Matthew chapter 24. And there's probably only like eight or 10 teachings of those passages. So (laughs) you got your work cut out for you. But that's just kind of the high level view. I love how it says in verse five, and in mercy shall the throne be established. He that sit upon the, uh, in truth, the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hastening righteousness. We're talking about Jesus there. Jesus coming to return. Um, And by the way, Jesus is going to go to a place called Basra. And that's tied into this whole story too. When he returns, he'll be on the Mount, uh, you know, of olives. He's going to put his foot there, but he's also going to go to a place called Basra. It's all part of this region of the world. um, And it's part of the end time scenario. So there you have it, a quick version of that. But he goes on and talks about the destruction of Moab here uh, at the last part of verse of chapter 16. It says in verse 6, we have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud. Even of his haughtiness and his pride and his, in his, his wrath. But his, li- his lies shall not be so. Therefore shall Moab howl for Moab. Everyone shall, bowl, uh, shall howl for the foundations of Kirhar Eset. And shall ye mourn? Surely they are stricken. For the fields of Heshbon languish. And the vine of Sibna, the lords of the heathen, have broken down the principal plants thereof. They are come even unto Jatzer. Uh, they wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are, as, are stretched out. They are gone over the sea. Therefore, I will bewail with the weeping of Jatzer, the vine of Sibna. I will water thee with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliah for the shouting of thy summer fruits and for thy harvest is fallen and gladness is taken away and joy out of the plentiful field. And in the vineyards, there shall be no singing, neither shall there be shouting. The treaders shall tread out no wine in their presses. I have made their vintage shouting to cease. Wherefore, my bowels shall sound like a harp uh, for uh, Moab and mine inner inward parts for Kirhar Esh. And it shall come to pass um, when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place, that he shall come to his sanctuary to pray, but he shall not prevail. Uh, That is to pray, you know, with false gods. They're going to pray to their gods, you know, Chemosh and others. Um, This is the word that the Lord hath spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now the Lord hath spoken, saying, within three years... As the years of a hireling and the glory of Moab shall be con- contemned with that great multitude and the remnant shall be small and feeble. By the way, the Moabites, they were into worshiping other gods. Um, there's a stone that you can see in, uh, uh, in a, um, a museum in Amman called the Moabite Stone. It's a basalt stone that bears the inscription of a king named Misha. And it was, it was found, by the way, in 1868 by archaeological digs. Um, it's three and a half feet wide, two feet in breadth. It kind of looked like a Ten Commandments stone, actually. And it had writing on it. And the Moabites' writing, um, it's one of the longest writings that they found archaeological of that region of the world. And as, as it turns out, the Moabite language was almost the same as Hebrew language. Like the, the, the characters themselves, the letters of the Hebrew language was the same. Um, 
But it, it basically talks about Misha's wars with Omri and stuff like that. But the reason I tell you about the Moabite stone is one of the things that it did again, I like to tell you about these things because the goofy cardigan wearing pipe puffing college professors uh, that say, the Bible's full of wrong things archaeologically. Um, one of those things that they used to say before 1800s was that Second Kings chapter 3, verses 4 through 27, was this um, King Misha war with Omri and what have you. They said that never could have happened. Uh, the Bible account of, you know, Second Kings 3 uh, are impossible. No way did it happen. And then they found the Moabite stone that accounted this war perfectly. Um, I mean, what an amazing thing. that This, this stone was, was carved in B.C. 900, 900 years before Christ. They found this tablet with the re- recording of a war that the stupid college professors said never happened. Um, and they had to shush their mouths and no longer say that stupidity. So again, go with the Bible. I love it. Um, and look, you can look up on Google, the Moabite stone, and you can even read, they translate it there on Wikipedia for you to read it. But it's kind of cool because um, it once again confirms the Bible as true and right. But the point is, Moab is a real, a real place. It's called Jordan today. And it's going to be a place that comes into the play uh, during the, the uh, tribulation period. And it's going to be a place where the Jews will flee. Um, is the stage set for that? The answer is yes. Isn't it interesting of all the Arab nations surrounding Israel, if you're, going to, if you're a Jew in Israel, where do you run? Where do you hide? Do you run up north to Lebanon? <laughs> no way. Because there's the Hezbollah. The Hezbollah they're up in the north. They're supported by Iran uh, with all the, and they want to see dead Jews. That's what the Hezbollah want is dead Jews. And you say, well, do we run into the south? Do we flee to Gaza? Uh, well, that's where the Hamas are. What do the Hamas want? Dead Jews. You don't run to the Gaza Strip uh, or even Egypt for that matter, because the Egyptians, of course, with the Arab Spring down there, it's not a safe place for Jews to run to the south in Egypt. Do you run to Saudi Arabia? No, that's not safe for Jews. There's no place safe. Isn't it interesting that if you're a Jew and you were going to flee today, you'd have the best chances fleeing to Jordan? Because right now the Jordanians have been, over the last, you know, 40, 50 years, relatively peaceful with the Jews. Um, the Jews have actually blessed the uh, Jordanians. The Jordanians have blessed the Jews. They have their little scuffles, you know, and stuff. But did you know um, that Abdullah, the king of Jordan, he, uh, he's kind of a, a very Western kind of guy, if you know King Abdullah. Um, but he's got a palace that he has. This is interesting to me. He's got a palace there in Elat. We go to Elat when we go on our trip to Israel. It's the southern tip of Israel. And you stand there and you can see Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. All You're standing in one place. It's like you can just touch these, these four countries. But Abdullah has a, 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 um, a palace in the very south of his country where he can go that basically has a back door that goes right into, Jerusalem, or right into Israel. And the reason why is if an Arab Spring busts out in Jordan, and if things get really bad in Jordan, Abdullah has an escape route. And where does he go? He goes to his palace in Elat, where he can quickly escape into uh, Israeli territory to be saved from some Arab Spring or ISIS or uh, Al-Qaeda. That's the idea. So the Jews have kind of said, yeah, we'll let him have sort of a back door here. If if he needs our help, we'll, we'll protect him. And that's kind of the way it is. Isn't it interesting that they have that kind of relationship only... During the tribulation period, it's going to be the other way. The Jews are going to flee to Jordan. 
when the Antichrist comes into that situation. And that's when the battle of Armageddon kicks into gear. That's when Christ returns. That's where he's going to come and wipe out Antichrist and his armies. And it's the end of the tribulation period. And the Jews will be, some of those Jews are going to be killed, but some of those Jews will be saved by being in that place called Petra. Amazing story. And to see the way that, you know, that whole, that has all sort of been readied. The Lord's got all the players in place, all the pieces ready and poised to it to do exactly like the Bible says that would happen in the last days. I just think that's interesting. Nothing really needs to change for all this stuff to happen. Um, We can see this stuff. We could have the rapture of the church tonight. And then they start building the temple in Jerusalem right, right now. They've already got all the stuff, by the way. The Jews are ready to roll. They got all the equipment ready to build the temple in Jerusalem. They just don't have the political means right now to build the temple. Who's going to provide that? This coming world leader, Antichrist. He could be on the scene right now. Do we know who he is? No. But he could be on the scene right now. Um, and he could be readying, you know, to lead the world out of its troubles. Does the world kind of need someone to lead them right now? Is there trouble in the whole world right now? Has the, in our lifetime, has there ever been something like the coronavirus that's kind of made us all wonder what in the world's going on and how are we going to get out of this? We will talk more about that on Friday night as we do our little prophecy update. We'll be talking about a bunch of that stuff. So I've kind of wet the whistle, hopefully, tonight as we've studied Isaiah. So there it is. We'll pick up chapter 17 and the destruction of Damascus uh, coming up here next week. Let's pray. And Lord, we are so thankful for your word that's living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. I know there's a lot we covered tonight, but I pray that you'd cause us to just uh, trust your word as true and living, Lord. Uh, and I pray that people not just take my word for it, but that, that our, our congregation would search the scriptures daily to see if what I'm saying is true. Lord, I, I thank you that we have your word right here readily available to us, that we can check and see and confirm what your word says, Lord. And I pray that we wouldn't be like the lazy, evil servant who just says, ah, the Lord delays his coming. But help us to be the faithful servant, busy about your work, leading people to Christ, pointing people to your son, Jesus. May we be all about that. Lord, bless your people, Christians around the world who are um, just seeking your face and wondering what's going on. Lord, I pray that we just put our trust in you. And we pray that you would come quickly, that you'd right all the wrongs, that you'd rule and reign on this earth. We look forward to that day. But until then, may we be busy doing your work. In Jesus' name, amen. To take advantage of our media ministry, we encourage you to visit us anytime at athecreek.com, where we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download. 